Hello and welcome to Against the Wall. I'm Jason Walls. Well, thank you very much for joining me. In this episode, we'll be talking about the stock market, different business headlines, what's happening in the currency market, looking around the world, what's making global headlines, and then we'll be finishing off by talking about the New Zealand budget. But first of all, let's take a look at the markets. Well, let's start by talking about New Zealand's biggest company, and that is, of course, Fonterra. Now, last week, we talked about the milk price and some of the impacts that it had on the economy and why that milk price was indeed so low. And it's actually been a good news week for Fonterra because it increased its forecast milk price payout to $4.25. And of course, that is up from $3.90. Now, although it is a $0.35 cent increase in starting the season on $4.25, is probably quite good for farmers. It does come in below what analysts expected to be for the first forecast of the 2016-17 season. And so there was an expectation that that would come in between $4.50 and $4.80. So it was a little bit disappointing in that regard. But Fonterra's chairman, John Wilson, was actually quite upbeat with the results. And I actually spoke to him this week, and he indicated he is actually quite optimistic that prices will rise in the next six months to a year. And he also indicated the market was still quite volatile and will continue to be that way for at least the next six months. So Mr. Wilson is talking up the cooperative's China prospects as well. And of course, in their November annual general meeting, Teo Sparings, the chief executive, stood up and said they wanted to be the number one dairy player in China. And of course, Mr. Wilson is still optimistic this is going to happen. Now, another milk company actually released their updated forecast this week as well. Um, the second biggest cooperative in New Zealand, and that is Westland Milk, and their forecast jumped to $4.55 to about $4.95, so slightly ahead of Fonterra's. And they're also quite optimistic too, although they highlight some concerns around supply. All right, let's have a look overseas, and we'll start with the NASDAQ. And, of course, the NASDAQ is a stock exchange in the U.S., which is based online, and it has a lot more stocks than the Dow Jones. And this week, it rejected listing applications for a social media networking company. Now, the interesting thing about this is, although the NASDAQ does often reject different companies, it was quite different with the company MassRoots, because it was rejected because it's a cannabis social networking site. Now, NASDAQ said that, basically, it would aid in the use of dealing and... An illegal substance. So basically, it was saying because this website sold marijuana, it's not going to let it on the stock exchange. So that was quite interesting. And the Massroot CEO said that this is going to have a ripple in the industry and said that it will insert roadblocks ahead of other cannabis related companies seeking to list on the exchange. Now, of course, there's probably more of these going to come through now that cannabis is legal in a lot of US states. Well, it's time to take a look at the currency markets. And this week, I'm joined by NZ Forex head of corporate FX, Alex Hill, and of course, Andrew Patterson. Now, the chances of an interest rate cut in June, of course, have fallen pretty abruptly with the market now pricing in just a 30% chance of a rate cut. It's down from 52% a week ago and 82% two weeks ago. How are you reading the market, Alex? Well, it it certainly is showing a little bit of short-term strength for the Kiwi. We've seen a a good start to the week this week. I think the the main one we're seeing that the real movement is against the Aussie dollar. So it's almost 94 cents again against the Aussie. And they surprised the market a few weeks back by cutting rates. Now this market seesaws again to a much lower chance of a rate cut by the RBNZ next month. And that's probably the cross that we're seeing the the most exaggerated Kiwi strength in at the moment. That's quite a drop, seeing it at 83% and then moving down that dramatically. Is that normal? Well, I think when you look at the last almost 10 years of interest rate picking, it has been extremely volatile and markets have been second-guessing central bank movements for quite a while now. 
just take a look at the shock that the last rate cut by the RBA had to the Aussie dollar. So we still think there's room for the RBNZ to cut, hmm. just whether or not it comes in June. And what these movements do say is that regardless of whether we see a cut or a hold, and even the statement, there'll be big volatility around the Kiwi, if you can count on it. So there will be a cut eventually, though? It's not going to stay at 2.25? Yeah, we believe so, absolutely. I think there still is room to do that. I think the RBA have paved the way for it as well. And yeah, we certainly think we'll see another one this year, just a matter of when. Now, the minutes of the Reserve Bank of Australia perhaps show a little reluctance to further cuts. Your thought on the Aussie OCR? Well, I think, again, it's just going to depend on what they see economically. Um, numbers aren't great coming out of Australia. The, the RBA would like to see much stronger growth figures. Um, but I don't think they want to scare the market by guaranteeing guaranteeing another cut at this stage. They'd like most of these central banks to see the devaluation of their dollar a little bit steadier. Have you been paying much attention to the housing market? Because there seems to be some really interesting stories coming from that. Well, obviously, it's not my initial area of expertise, but I think we all do, especially as Aucklanders, you tend to keep half an eye on it. If you're not, you're asleep. So, yeah, and, and that's one of the challenges, I think, obviously, around the Reserve Bank's outlook for interest rates. But look, at the end of the day, they've got a job, and that's to keep inflation within a band. And I think by isolating the Auckland housing market as a reason not to cut interest rates is a little bit of a dangerous play, and we've seen that historically before. Okay, what about the Fed's next move? Interesting. Look, I think the market's currently looking at 26% for June. The talk now is do they before a Brexit possible play? I think, again, a Fed rate hike, it's a matter of when, not Mm. if. So maybe June, get it out of the way, but I think you're certainly going to see one this year. I guess the backdrop of what happens with the UK and Europe might be an excuse for them to sit on their hands until the following meeting. But at this point, we don't expect next month, definitely on the cards for for July. Do you think markets are going to gang up on the Fed once again? Well, I think that's difficult to do. I think that's the biggest driver for where we're going to see currencies in the next while. It really does stick out like a sore thumb when you look across the globe and you see Fed looking to push rates up and everyone else going lower. So I I think the US dollar strength is is something that we will see continue, not in a straight line, but something I think we can can count on for months to come. And how many more rate hikes are you picking this year? Because of course in December, Yalen came out and said they were expecting about four. That number was reduced to two. So do you think two's still likely or...? I think it is if you look at the numbers, but we've seen a real reticence from them to be aggressive on this, and they mm. could have front-run it already, and we, we haven't seen that. So I think um, there's a lot out there calling for two, and I think that's probably where you'll see the bulk of people's picks. But given the way that they've reacted since December, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try and drip-feed only one more this year. And if you want the full-length version of that interview, head on over to www.nbr.co.nz forward slash currency talk. All right, Andrew Patterson's back, and we're taking a look at some of the big global macroeconomic headlines of the week. Business growth across the Eurozone dipping to a 16-month low in May. How concerned should we be about this? I don't know, really, because you keep seeing these headlines about the new low, and it just seems like every month there's a new low, which in and of itself is probably something quite concerning. But something like this isn't essentially news to the point where Europe is slowing down. I mean, we all know that Europe is having a lot of problems. But the quite interesting part within this is that both France and Germany are doing quite well, and it's just they look to be being dragged down by the rest of the Eurozone countries. Now, when you take a closer look, it kind of does begin to make sense because you've got the likes of Greece, you've got the Eastern European countries and Spain, which aren't doing too well at all. And then you've got, of course, Germany and France, which are doing quite well. They're not doing fantastically well. They're just kind of doing all right, which it makes sense when you compare it to the rest of the Eurozone because there's a myriad of different things going on in there. But despite this, the interesting thing was that consumer confidence was actually at its highest level since January 
January. So there seems to be a little bit of an imbalance there. People, you've got this growth trending down, but people are a little bit more optimistic. Now, it didn't really move the market, and that's probably because a lot of market watchers have probably got the same attitude as we have. It's like, it's down again. What's new? But rates are still low. Inflation is still falling. So it kind of begs the question, I mean, what is it that the European Central Bank could do? I mean, I was thinking before, helicopter money, Andrew. <laughs> well, that's always been considered the option of last resort, isn't it? Mm. Just throw more money at the people and allow them to go and spend. And I suppose over time, that's going to become the ground that they're going to shift more and more on if stimulus is going to become more and more important to crank these economies up. But, you know, then if you use Japan as the basis of of others that have tried that approach, how far is it actually going to get you? Because if we were having this conversation about five years ago, we would have been saying, my question would have been negative rates, Andrew, and you probably would have started off by laughing. So it'd be interesting to say what's going to be happening in five years' time, what we'll be talking about then. And how low those rates do go. Mm. I mean, that's the other interesting part of all of this, too, is really where is the bottom for negative interest rates? And does that effectively become a very useful tax on savers that effectively by imposing a negative interest rate on them, um, they're paying a price. Now, speaking about interest rates, because you did a very interesting interview with world-famous economist Neil Ferguson in your Sunday business. Now, you guys talked about the Fed and you asked him, will the Fed have the courage of its convictions? Really interested to see what your take on that was, because he had some interesting things to say about the Fed. Well, he did, because I think all of us who work in this business are constantly trying to understand why the Fed may makes the decisions that it does. And what really interested me was his answer talking about these secret mandates, that the Fed actually has a mandate around international stability and particularly stability around emerging markets. But that's not something that they can communicate to Congress because if Congress became aware of that, they kind of hit the roof. So it was an interesting way of explaining the rationale about why the Fed is making the decisions that it's making when sometimes the economic evidence doesn't necessarily line up that way. Yeah, and it was a really a real head-scratcher listening to him because he was making a lot of good points. For example, what he was saying around employment. The U.S. unemployment level at the moment is quite low. I mm. mean, it's it's just hit under 5%. Now, the mandate, one of the, the actual mandates, not the secret one that Fed have, is actually worrying about employment and price stability. So employment is looking good. And he argued that if it were just exclusively looking at the U.S. economy, it would have hiked rates a number of times since December. That's right. And of course, we see, as I asked him too, about the challenge that the market provides every time the Fed wants to move, of course, that the market reacts accordingly. So who really is calling the shots? Mm, Yeah, because... The other side of that was just on that part that you were talking about around the stability around the world. If the Fed does increase rates, that would have a disastrous effect, Mm. especially right now on emerging economies with oil prices, commodity prices at rock bottom levels. So many of these emerging economies own so much U.S. debt. So if the price of that debt, the interest on that debt went up, it would be disastrous for them. That's right. Not to mention, of course, the pain that it inflicts on the export sector in the U.S., who are obviously very comfortable with the dollar where it is at the moment and having that whole situation change, clearly not in their interests either.
All right, well, moving on, let's talk about the budget. And of course, that was the big news item this week, and that dominated headlines across the country. And you know what? Rightly so. How the government spends its money is quite a big deal. So it was good to see it getting as much coverage as it did. So I want to have a, a, a bit of a budget dissection and take a look of what actually was announced. Now, first of all, let's start with the surplus. And of course, that was announced at $700 million. So basically, that means that the government spent less than it earned. So the government's income was $78.5 billion. Now, that was collected through taxes. Things like $32.5 billion was on individual tax, almost $20 billion was on GST, $11 billion on corporate tax, and those sort of things. So they were sort of the main things that it got in terms of its income. Now, some of its expenditure, now that was up to $77.4 billion. Now, the biggest areas of spending were in places like health, which was $16 billion, education, um, New Zealand super, which was up at $13 billion and welfare, like the benefit, and that was at $12 billion. So that's what it looks like today. They're forecasting out to 2020 to have a surplus of $5 billion. So that's quite a significant amount of money for the government to be playing with. So let's have a look inside this budget and what was actually announced. Now, it kind of received quite a few mixed reviews, but many are labeling it as boring as there wasn't really any huge big ticket items in terms of more spending or any major cuts. But what is it that we actually did get? Well, there was an announcement of $1.6 billion in new spending. Now, that was forecasted by the government in the lead-up to this budget, but it was interesting to see what it is that they used that extra spending on. So this new spending includes an extra $2.2 billion for new health spending, and that was announced over the next four years. So within that, there is $570 million for this financial year. So we see that DHBs will get an extra $400 million to help them cope with some of the increased demands. There's also an extra $40 million which will go towards a national bowel screening program. And, of course, there was an infrastructure package of about $2.1 billion. Now, when you think about infrastructure, you tend to think about things like roads and trains and bridges. Now, of course, Kiwi Rail was in there at almost $200 million over the next two years, and there was $25 million for Cycleway. The lion's share actually went on modernizing the IRD's tax system. So a lot of this was announced last month, but we actually get to see the price tag, and it's fair to say it's quite a large one as well. In fact, EY tax partner David Snell told the MBR this week it could lead to the loss of about a 1,000 jobs when this whole system is being modernized. So it's pretty big there. However, there are the counter arguments that it will, in the long run, help with efficiency and overall government expenditure as well. Now, the government is also shelling out $400 million for science and innovation, an extra $250 million for education and apprenticeship programs. And there were various other different things that they put their money into in this budget. Now, let's move on to some of the more income-related things. Now, although the government promised no new taxes not long ago, that promise was seemingly broken when they hiked the tobacco tax. And now there'll be a 10% increase on cigarettes every year till 2020. So that puts the price of cigarettes from roughly about $20 a packet, which they are now, to about $30 by 2020. This will raise an estimated $425 million across the next four years. There was also announced $350 million will be raised from raising carbon taxes. So it's nothing too outrageous in this budget. It's something that we've really come to expect from National and some of their budgets. But of course, there was political opposition to the budget. And if there wasn't, well, then there's not really any point for the opposition parties. But instead of going through them, just listen to hear what they have to say. This House has no confidence in a government that has lost touch after eight years in office, is too often focused on the few at the very top, 
and which is forgetting about middle New Zealanders who are just trying to get ahead. Now that was Andrew Little in the House talking about the budget and here is Green Party co-leader James Shaw. Mr Speaker, when New Zealanders needed homes, this government has given us toilets. The extent of this government's vision for New Zealand is $40 million worth of toilets for tourists and presumably those New Zealanders who are sleeping in cars. So it looks like the opposition clearly wasn't impressed with the extra $100 million to free up some crown land in Auckland and the extra $258 million for 750 more special housing projects in Auckland. But the things that I found quite interesting about this budget was the projections for economic growth and GDP because the Treasury is forecasting GDP growth at 2.9% this year and 2.8% for the next few years. Now, this is a shade lower than the RBNZ's 3% estimate and a lot lower than some bank economists. In fact, ASB were picking 4% by 2017, but nevertheless, 2.8% is still quite good. Now, this may or may not go up depending on whether tax cuts are made. Now, John Key has suggested for the government to cut taxes, it would need at least $3 billion in surplus. And with the forecast surplus at $5 billion by 2020, it looks like there is a good chance that that's going to be happening. So the question is really when? Is it going to be next year, which of course is an election year, or is it going to be the year after that? So a national can use that as a sort of election promise to say vote for us and you will get tax cuts. Only time will tell. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm JasonWalls92. And of course, you can follow me on SoundCloud as well, just JasonWalls. Well, what to look out for next week, of course, is the ANZ Business Confidence Index. There's the terms of trade. Then looking further into June, we've got the GDP growth numbers and of course the US jobs data. But thank you very much for joining me this week. This has been Against the Wall with Jason Walls.